a king in, who lived in Asia Minor, what's now called Asia Minor, about 300 BC. His name was King Gordius. It was in a country called Phrygia. And the legend about this king is that he had created or had created a knot that was so intricately tied, very difficult to untie this knot. So he proclaimed, or the legend had it, that anybody who could untie the knot would go on to become the ruler of all of Asia. And many people came and they tried to untie the knot and nobody was able to. Until Alexander the Great came through. He met this king and heard the legend and saw the knot and he took out his sword and sliced it. He cut the knot in that way. In some way that's what our practice is about. How we can untie the knot of ego, untie the knot of self. Of course, this legend has been interpreted by different spiritual traditions in quite opposite ways. In some traditions, namely my own, kind of like the idea of just coming and slicing it through in one stroke. After telling this story, somebody came up to me and said, well, in the Sufi tradition, they say that it's because he didn't patiently untie it that he did not actually go on to conquer all of Asia, that he was stopped in India. So probably both sides are true. The question that I'd like to address tonight really has to do with the nature of enlightenment, the nature of freedom. And different traditions talk about freedom, talk about enlightenment from different sides, different perspectives. In some traditions, we look at the difficulties, the hindrances, the obstacles, the suffering that arises in our minds. And we're familiar with that, with desire and aversion and hatred and fear and all of the things that cause us suffering. And the path of practice is to see how we get caught in that and to free our mind from these obstacles. That's one approach. Another approach taken by different spiritual traditions is to recognize the unborn free nature of awareness itself. That understanding which we read about in so many texts that in some fundamental way we are already free but that somehow we don't quite recognize it. And so in this path of practice, the emphasis is on recognizing and pointing out and recognizing this quality of the unborn, of the unconditioned within ourselves. Sometimes when we hear all these teachings or read many books or come to this from so many perspectives, it gets confusing. Now, well, which way should I follow, and which way is the correct way? Fortunately, all of the teachings from all of the traditions, and in fact the state or the quality of realization itself, all of it converges in one very simple expression of the Dharma. Nothing whatsoever 
is to be clung to as I or mine. All the teachings converge in this point. And the Buddha said, whoever heard this teaching has heard all of the teachings. And whoever puts this teaching into practice has practiced all of the teachings. Nothing whatsoever is to be clung to as I or mine. So we need to look carefully, we need to pay attention to all the ways in which we do cling. If the very essence of enlightenment, of freedom, of awakening, whichever image or word you like to use, the very essence is non-clinging. What we need to do in our practice is to see all the ways in which our mind does get attached. But we do take things to be I and mine. Because if we don't, if we don't put forth this effort in our lives, we just are remaining in the dream of ignorance. We're caught up in our own attachments, our own grasping, our own clinging, and don't see it. So this is really why it's called the path of awakening. So we practice paying attention again and again, coming back, very simply, in a very simple way, to each moment's experience and to see how we're holding it. What are our likes and dislikes, our reactions, our aversions, our grasping, our attachments. It's not complicated. We see this by looking, by paying attention. And as we do this, we can see for ourselves the suffering that comes from the mind that clings, from the mind that grasps at anything. The very nature of clinging or grasping is suffering. There's a um, kind of monkey trap in Asia, which is a very clever trap. They hollow out a coconut, tie it to a stake in the ground, and have a hole in the bottom of a coconut just big enough for the monkey to slip its hand in but not big enough for the monkey to withdraw its hand when it's in a fist. Then they put some kind of sweet food in the coconut. The monkey comes along, smells it, slips its hand, and grabs the food. Trapped. Can't get out. The hunters are coming along. Who's ever going to capture the monkey? The monkey becomes frantic. It can't get out of the trap. Who's keeping that monkey trapped? Nothing but the force of its own attachment. All it has to do is open a tent, slip out, and be free. It's a very rare monkey that can do that. And that's us. We are that monkey. The suffering of holding on, the suffering of attachment, all we have to do is open our hands, let go, and be free, and yet it's so hard to do. And when we look at our own experience and the experience of so many others, we see that there's a wide range of suffering. Particularly now I'm talking of the suffering of the mind. We're all familiar with the various sufferings of the body. I mean, it ranges in intensity from the extreme of real mental illness, where people the mind can get so identified with images or 
difficult, afflictive, powerful emotions or reactions so identified, so completely identified, that there is no space at all. No space at all in the mind. You know, and you know if you worked with or been with people in this state, tremendous suffering involved in that. We can see the suffering in the mind in just more ordinary, deluded states. Times when our minds get caught in obsessive thought loops. You know, they just keep going around and around and it's very difficult to let go. On retreat, this phenomenon is called yogi minds, and it's well documented. Because somehow on retreat, in the non-distractedness and the magnification of things through the concentration, sometimes the smallest kinds of thoughts suddenly start looming tremendously large. I'll just give you a couple examples of yogi minds, but I'm sure you have your own. When the mind just becomes obsessed, with some little thing. Quite a few years ago, I had been doing a retreat, a self-retreat at IMS. And the room I had was way down at the end of the hall, uh, quite far away from everything else. And I'm sitting there, and I can't remember how long the retreat was, probably a month or two. And sometime into it, I started to hear these voices coming through the pipes. <coughs> And in my mind, I was just imagining that these were people talking in the kitchen, which was miles away, <laughs> long way away. And somehow I got it into my head that the voices from the kitchen were being carried up through the pipes, all down the corridor, into my room, and I was overhearing these conversations. And the conversations I was hearing, that the two friends and the wife had killed the husband and somebody else is dying of cancer and <laughs> and throughout the day I'm listening to these I'm hearing these conversations <laughs> finally after a few days of this I mean I was in silence and I was you know not interacting with them I had to go I had to go out down to the kitchen what's happening why isn't anybody telling me anything <laughs> yeah <laughs> It was just the radiator, you know, the noise of the radiator. But somehow, <laughs> my mind had transformed that into these voices and conversations and was really obsessed with it. That's yogi mind. <laughs> On another retreat, there was one guy, this was southwest, northwest someplace. He got so obsessed with the planes flying overhead where the retreat was. He wrote this note to the retreat manager, please write to United Airlines and have them reroute the planes. <laughs> where we lose all kind of perspective <laughs> of what's fun. I mean, these are somewhat funny examples, although in the midst of them, just the force of that clinging to these thought loops, there's a lot of suffering. And of course, even more so when the thought loops are really painful. There's the suffering that comes from grasping or identify, when we identify with emotional patterns that keep overwhelming us. Might be fear or jealousy or anger or resentment or whatever, grief. 
And when we don't know how to let go, when we just get caught again and again and are overwhelmed by these emotional patterns, there's a tremendous suffering in that. And what's so strange is often in these very painful states, somehow the mind has this capacity to justify them to ourselves. Well, I should be feeling this. Now we, we get even further in mess. I should be angry. Who's suffering? It's like beating ourselves because we don't know how to let go. There's the suffering of our addiction to different kinds of actions. And we each have our own particular little addictions or big addictions that we know are harmful to us. We have enough wisdom to see that what we're doing is actually harmful, and yet we keep on doing it. What is that except the force of grasping in the mind, the force of clinging? That monkey holding on very tight. Clinging or grasping to anything as I or mine is suffering, is a constriction. And if you pay attention in your own experience to those moments when it's happening, I think you will feel this sense of contraction. Whatever particular experience, whether it's a thought or an emotion or a reaction or a sensation, whatever, whatever particular experience we grasp at, we cling to, as being I, as being mine, becomes a prison of self. So tonight I would like to address this question of why this sense of self, this habit of self-creation is so strong in us, is so deeply conditioned. And how we can also free ourselves from this great illusion which keeps us bound in so much suffering. So we start out just with the understanding of the nature of mind. And mind, in the way that I'm using the word, means the faculty of cognizance, that which knows. Not, not knows in the sense of understands, but simply is aware of, that which is aware. So this faculty of cognizance of mind is wide open, like space. It's clear, it's open, it's invisible, it's lucid, things are simply known. Sounds, sights, thoughts, sensations. All of these things are being known by awareness. You can say by the mind. And it really is a great mystery which is worthy of investigation. Can we recognize the nature of awareness? Because it's an ongoing, ever-present mystery. Things are known, known by what? This invisible, clear, lucid, cognizing faculty. The mind is also something else beside this simple awareness, the simple knowing. And that is, there's a whole range of mental qualities or mental factors which arise in every moment and color this knowing mind, this awareness. 
For example, greed arises in a moment. So it colors the mind in a certain way. Hatred, fear, joy, happiness, mindfulness, concentration, despair, excitement, elation. All of these qualities of mind have their own unique function. And we know what, what they are from our own experience. Some of these mental factors are wholesome. And wholesome in the Buddhist sense is very pragmatic. What wholesome or skillful means is that they are the condition for happiness. And some of these mental factors or mental qualities are unwholesome or unskillful. And again, it's very pragmatic. They call that because they bring us suffering. Okay, so there's the natural open clarity of awareness, that empty space of awareness. And in every moment, different mental states arise in various combinations. So that's the basic map, the basic picture. There is one particular mental factor or mental quality which, when it is out of balance, keeps us imprisoned in this idea or belief in self. So I'd like to talk a little bit about what this particular quality or factor is. In the Buddhist psychology, it's called perception. And perception means a very specific thing. It's that mental factor which has the function to pick out the distinguishing marks of an experience, remember it, create a concept about it, and store it in our memory. So, for example, we look up, and there's blue open space. We recognize that. That's the faculty of perception. We create a concept, sky. We store that in the memory, so every time we look up and see that, oh yeah, there's the sky or tree, or man, or woman, or house, or car. It's this factor of perception which recognizes that which distinguishes that experience from everything else, creates a concept about it, and then we store it. Okay, when there is this surface perception, the surface recognition, along with mindfulness, what happens is that our perception frames the experience so that we can look deeper. This is the function of mental noting. When you make a mental label, that's not mindfulness. The labeling is the factor of perception. It's recognizing the particular experience in, out, pressure, heat, whatever. We recognize it in order to frame it so that we can look at the experience with mindfulness in a deeper way, so that we're not satisfied with the simple surface recognition. But when there's strong perception without mindfulness, which is our usual state of affairs, then what happens is we recognize the superficial appearance, we pick out, we can tell man, woman, house, car, we create a concept about that recognition and then take that concept to be real. And we miss seeing the deeper, the deeper reality. I'll give you a, what I think is a very touching example of this process. It's kind of sad, actually. 
a friend, a friend of mine told me the story of his kid who was in school, I don't know, one of first grade or something like that, young boy. And the teacher asked, uh, what's the color of apples? And this little boy raised his hand, he said, white. And the teacher said, no, apples are, apples are red or they're yellow, golden. There's no, no such thing as a white apple. But the kid was really persistent. <laughs> no, no, apples are white. And the teacher said, no, you're wrong, you know, apples are this and that. So finally, uh, he said, well, what happens when you cut the apple open? What color is it? Uh, and I thought, so much of our educational process is kind of squashing some perceptions of underlying realities that don't quite fit into, you know, our normal perception, our normal recognition. But this is what happens. We get caught by our concept of something and fail to see what lies underneath. There's one perception we have about ourselves and the world which becomes the origin of many misconceptions. And it's really at the root of our taking many wrong, many wrong turns in our understanding of the world and of ourselves. And that is the very usual perception we have of the solidity of things. We live in a world of thinking that things are solid. Our bodies are solid, the buildings are solid. There's a strong sense of solidity. And as long as we are living under this perception, it's keeping us from seeing, deeply seeing, the impermanence and momentary insubstantial nature of phenomena. And do we really perceive our bodies? Do we deeply perceive our bodies as being impermanent? And we have the concept, you know, that we get old and change, but that's over a long period of time. Are we really aware of the kind of insubstantiality and momentariness of our bodily processes moment to moment? Probably not. We have pretty, pretty solidified sense of ourselves. But if this perception of solidity is basically inaccurate, why is it so prevalent? This is the common perception in the world. This is how most people are relating and living. One reason that it's so prevalent is because or due to the rapidity of change. Processes are often happening so quickly that we don't see the change. You know, when you turn on an electric switch and the light goes through, that's a current. But we don't see it as a current. We don't see it as a flow. We see it as one thing, light. When you go to the movies, Most likely, you don't see it as separate frames of film moving very quickly. We see the, the solidity of things, and we get lost in the story and the perceptions, precisely because we're not seeing the separate frames. And of course, 
the whole point of going to the movies is not to see the separate frames. You wouldn't pay ten bucks to... But yet that's really what's happening. Our perception is the illusion. And we're enjoying that particular illusion. So one of the reasons we have this view of solidity is that we're not seeing the rapidity of change. One of the things that happens in practice is our perception gets increasingly refined and rapid. There's something I call NTMs, which are noticings per minute. You know, and when we start, the NPMs are oh, 10 NPMs. <laughs> you know, we notice a breath, two or three, and then something else, and something else. But as we practice, and as our mindfulness gets stronger, the NPMs go way up. And there can be, I don't know, thousands of noticings per minute. But we're really seeing the process in an extremely refined way. The rapidity of change becomes very apparent. We're also under the illusion that things are solid and fixed and steady and unchanging because we don't observe things closely. We're in the habit of seeing things from a distance. Just as an example of this, and we could take anything as an example, but you know, we look outside and we see a tree, and the tree looks like it's a thing, which we recognize. We have the perception tree. Everybody knows what that is. If you start to examine, come up very close to the tree, and start to examine what it is we call tree, you see, there's no such thing as tree. You start seeing leaves and bark and stem and all the components of each of those uh, aspects, the whole thing starts to break up into minute, ever-changing particles of experience. There's nothing solid there. Now, if we put anything under a high-powered microscope, it would be a whole different reality. It wouldn't be the reality that we normally live in at all. And yet, because we don't usually observe things that closely, we live in this illusion that things are solid and we have created all these concepts to name them as if they're self-existing things. How much of our sense of ourselves comes from the concept we have of the body? Probably a lot. It's often the first immediate response we have if somebody would ask, you know, who are you? This is who I am. You know, our first response would be referring in some way or other to the body. We get up in the morning. You know, we look in the mirror. We recognize the image. That's me again. <laughs> because we have this sense. We've created this concept of body, we've identified with the concept. A friend of mine, some years ago, had surgery for a, um, this was a fibroid tumor, and they did the surgery uh, with la laser, and the whole process, as it was described, was quite amazing, you know, they somehow get in there with a very tiny incision, and they're cutting away the tumor by watching a video screen 
you know, it's all done with this laser cutting away. And what's so amazing is that uh, this whole thing from the inside is being videotaped. You know, and so when you leave the hospital, the kind of consolation prize, you're given the video of your insides. So with some trepidation, kind of we all sat down and <laughs> looked at this video. And it was amazing. And it was taken from the inside of the body. And there were all these organs and muscle uh, and flesh and blood and all of those things. I think it's very rare that we would identify ourselves with all of that. That we would say, yeah, that's me. (laughs) All those organs and flesh and tissue and... But somehow it's all neatly, nicely and neatly packaged in a skin and all of a sudden, yes, that's who I am. It's because we're not seeing clearly. We're seeing just the surface of things. We're creating a concept about it. Yeah, this is the body, this is my body, this is who I am. And it's because we don't examine, we don't investigate carefully exactly what it is. What the nature of this body is. Somebody mentioned to me after one of these talks, as some kind of scientist, medical type, said that if all the space were removed from the body, the matter, the physical matter that would be left, is the size of a particle of dust. That's a pretty astounding image. (laughs) This is what I am, a particle of dust. And space. So it's important that we go beyond kind of this superficial perception, the superficial recognition, because that's very much what keeps us caught in this prison, this idea of self. The meditation practice is very much geared to helping us do this. Just a few examples. When you do the walking meditation, you might start out very much with the sense of I'm moving my body, I'm moving my foot, my leg. But the more you drop in just to the sensations of the movement, the feeling of the movement, the lightness, the heaviness, the tension, the weight, whatever, after some time the concept we have of foot, of leg, of body disappears and it simply becomes a flow of changing sensations. The same thing happens in the sitting. As we pay more and more attention, and more careful attention, to the actual sensations we're feeling, the concept, the images we have of head, of shoulders, of back, of body, it falls away. And very often in the sitting, as our awareness gets strong, the whole form of the body falls away. It's formless, and it's just changing sensations in space. As this begins to happen, we really re-evaluate what our sense of self is.
this doesn't mean that we throw away the concept or that we stop using this perception of the body. It's a very convenient perception. It's a very convenient concept. We can buy clothes to fit us you know, when we have a sense of our bodies. We can know that the chair here is mostly empty space and yet we sit on it. So I'm not suggesting that somehow through practice we stop living in the conventional world, in the world of our conventional reality, but rather we see the importance of understanding the underlying reality. Because if we don't, if we stay simply on this level of solidity, of identification, yes, this is my body, this is who I am, the very consequential implication of that is that we get attached to it, either to our bodies, to somebody else's body, with fear of loss, with fear of death. Where does fear of death come from? It comes from attachment to the body. It's the body that dies. So it has very important consequences for us. This is not just a philosophical uh, discussion. There are other concepts which we create out of mental experience. I've been talking mostly about the concepts that come from our experience in the physical world. But we have a whole range of mental experiences which we have perceptions about, a surface recognition, which we create concepts about and then live in those concepts. I'd like to mention a few because they condition the way we live in very far-reaching ways. One of them is the concept we have of time, of past and future. This is powerfully conditioned in us. Have you stopped to investigate, to consider what it is, what is the actual experience which we are calling past, or which we're calling future? What is, what is really going on in those moments? It's quite amazing. What's happening is we're sitting here quietly, minding our own business. Certain category of thoughts come, of recollections, of memories, images. This category of thought or image comes. We make a concept about it, past, and then with some amazing mental gymnastics, we take this concept and kind of toss it back behind us as if the past is a reality back there from which we've come. But really the only way that we ever experience the past is as a thought in the present moment. It's the only place it could be experienced. We do the same thing with future. We're living our lives, certain thoughts come to a category of thoughts, imagining, planning, anticipating. We create this, con we recognize them through perception. We create a concept about this category of thoughts, future. Toss it out ahead of us somehow and imagine that the future is a reality out there waiting for us. Which it might or might not be. That's not the issue. The issue is the only way we experience
experience the future is as a thought in the moment. To understand this is tremendously liberating because we mostly go through our lives with this mountain, two mountains, of past and future on each shoulder. How much of the time do we spend lost in the past or anticipating the future? A huge amount. With all the attendant feelings and anticipations and anxieties and whatever kind of emotional baggage we have about it, it's a huge burden to carry. And yet, as soon as we see that our experience of past and future is only a thought right now, it's very light. A thought hardly weighs anything at all. And all of a sudden, that burden is off. And we're actually living our lives moment to moment with these thoughts coming. Not that they stop coming, but we recognize them as thoughts in the moment. And we stop investing this huge reality in them which they don't inherently have. You can see how it works. I mean, it works in so many aspects of our lives. You can see it very clearly right on the retreat. Begin to notice the thoughts of time you have about the retreat. Now you're sitting, you're having a hard time. Oh my God, four more days, five more days, but not however long. You know, and this thought of projecting the next five days of the future and you feel depressed and you feel heavy and you think, you know, I'll never make it. What's happening? It's just a thought arising in the mind. But it's not being seen as just a thought. The whole future time is being created, then we get lost in that future world and are weighed down by it. Or you might have the opposite sense. You might be on the retreat and things are going well and it's really interesting and oh, there are only a few more days. I wish there were three more months. And you create that kind of future reality. Getting lost in thoughts about time condition our present experience in one way or another. And all the time, it's just like this mirage. It's just a thought coming through. There's another uh, little gem of wisdom from St. Augustine. It's not that I've actually done this great study of St. Augustine. This was kind of a quip in Newsweek. (laughs) 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 It happened to be a St. Augustine quip. (laughs) He said, if the past and future really exist, where are they? That's right to the point. What we discover is that they're right here. They're right here in the moment. Okay, so this is one kind of mental experience we create a concept about and then live in that world, burdened by that world because we're not seeing the underlying reality of it. Another one that conditions our life a lot, the concepts we have of ownership, of possessiveness. We have this idea that we actually own things, either possessions, or our bodies, or our minds. If we really owned our minds, okay, just sitting, no more thinking. Can we do that now? Bodies, don't get old, don't get sick. The concept of the sense of 
ownership or possessiveness about it is really quite ridiculous. When we look to see that it's simply following its own laws. Just imagine coming into the hall and seeing somebody sitting in your seat. It's happened on YouTube. Major trauma. <laughs> it's quite amazing. Here on retreat, we're practicing renunciation and generosity and letting go and metta. But suddenly, somebody sitting in my seat and all that attachment and possessiveness. There's a wonderful story. Carol mentioned the other night this Japanese Zen hermit monk poet, Ryokan, who's um, 18th century and a wonderful being from the poems that he left. It seems he had this little hut up in the mountains, very poor, and he had hardly any possessions at all. And one day he was out just wandering through the mountains. He came back to his hut and everything was gone. The few things that he had were gone. And being real times, he wrote this little haiku poem. The moon at the window, the thief left it behind. Just imagine going back to your house. <laughs> Everything's gone. Oh, the moon at the window. <laughs> Unlikely. <laughs> because we have this strong idea, we have this strong belief that we actually own things and they belong to us. And out of that, of course, comes this great attachment. And out of the great attachment comes fear of loss and suffering when there is loss, all because of this concept. Concepts of self-images and roles in the world, and this I think would be a very helpful one to look at for everybody. And especially in doing the work that you do, to what extent is a self-image or an image of a role conditioning how you're doing the work, you know, or perhaps getting in the way in some fashion. We're conditioned in so many ways by self-image. Um, there are a thousand stories, Bob just mentioned one uh, from my painful childhood. <laughs> Second or third grade music teacher says, Goldstein just mouthed the words. <laughs> <laughs> that was the beginning <laughs> of a very sad, long sad singing career, or lack of it. <laughs> you know, so I grew up with this great inhibition, and which was reinforced by many other friends along the way. <laughs> so it wasn't just the music teacher. But then I, after my time in India, I came back. I was teaching at Naropa Institute in Colorado. This was in 74. And it was kind of a big sort of spiritual Woodstock you know, event. And I saw advertising the catalog, you know, a course called The Natural Voice. Hmm. And I thought, great, this is a new age singing class and it'll be safe and I'll be, really be able to overcome this self-image that I had of not being able to sing and being afraid and inhibited. So it took quite a bit of courage actually to sign up for this class. But I did. and. In the first couple of weeks, we're fine, and we're all doing. We do everything together, and I felt really, really coming out. 
And then one day the teacher, the main teacher, didn't come, was sick, and a substitute came. And there was this woman who was teaching Balkan folk singing. And she was a very intense woman. <laughs> and she had us kind of be in a circle, and she would sing a note, and we were supposed to sing it back to her. <laughs> I knew I was in very big trouble. <laughs> and we're going around the room, and it's getting closer and closer to me, and I'm getting more and more uptight. <laughs> she gets to me, she sings something. <laughs> I try to replicate it. It's not even in the ballpark. <laughs> if she does it because she was very determined again, I did something again. <laughs> she wouldn't give up. <laughs> Finally, fortunately, the, the kind of, the regular teacher came back into the class at that time and he kind of saw what was happening. And really, out of act of great compassion, he kind of started with where I was and then very gradually led me up to this particular pitch. And when I finally got it, the whole class started to applaud. <laughs> I'm not sure the point of all <laughs> It's mostly about how in one way or another we've been very conditioned by self-images and by roles and their prisons. You know, and we really need to see them, to see how we get caught and to begin to see if there are ways of coming out of them. There are even some more fundamental things. You know, there's time, there's ownership, possessiveness, self-images, the roles. Some things which we might consider more fundamental to who we are that in one way or another are concepts. Like age, like gender, like race. <coughs> now, things that we really quite identify with. How old is your breath? And you're just sitting there, and you're breathing in and out. What does age mean? It's a concept. We've created a certain concept, and it has a certain use. But when we're right in the moment of experience, we can see that it's just a concept we've created. Is the, is the pressure in your knee male or female? <laughs> you're sitting. Your eyes are closed. You're feeling that pressure. What does gender mean at that time? What color is your mind? We get so caught in different concepts about ourselves and so constricted by those concepts. And I'm not suggesting that these differences don't exist. They do exist, obviously. We're all conditioned by our various circumstances. But to the degree that we get identified with or caught in these concepts, we create a very narrow world for ourselves. There's an underlying reality in which these concepts don't apply at all. Okay, the most deeply rooted concept, which is the Gordian knot of our lives, is the concept of self, this concept of I. There's a surface perception there's a surface recognition of the body, the experience of the body, of sensations and of mental events that form a certain pattern. We recognize that pattern 
of physical natural events. There is a pattern there. We recognize it. We create a concept for it. Self, I. Joseph. We put a name on it. And then we believe that this concept, this name, is a self-existing reference point behind experience to whom experience happens. This is a very important point. There is a surface recognition of the pattern of mental physical phenomena. We look in the mirror, we recognize the pattern. We put a name on it, Joseph, I, self, and then we believe that this concept is something that is really there behind experience to whom experience is happening and right there is the birth of I right there is the birth of self a great awakening happens in our practice and in our lives when we see that our experience is really a flow of empty phenomena rolling on empty of self it's sights, it's sounds, it's smells, it's sensations, it's thoughts and emotions. It's all the constituents of our experience. But there's no one behind it to whom it's happening. What we call self is this process of changing phenomena. Everything is arising out of conditions. I'll give you an example of this. Now, after a rainstorm, sometimes you look out and you see a rainbow. We all know what a rainbow is, and we recognize it, and it brings us usually a sense of joy. Is there really such a thing as a rainbow? Is a rainbow is a thing existing in itself. No. A rainbow is an appearance due to certain conditions. I don't, I don't understand exactly all the conditions, but it's moisture in the air and light and whatever. These conditions come together, and there's an appearance of a rainbow. There's no rainbow existing in itself different than the interplay of these conditions. And it's quite obvious that the conditions are constantly changing and ephemeral and transitory. But we don't normally see in that way. We don't see that things are appearances due to conditions. We solidify the appearance. Oh, your rainbow as a thing. Joseph as something solid, as a, as a person to whom experience is happening. That's the great illusion. And it arises because we're not looking closely enough at our experience to see that what we're calling self is a constellation of mental, physical phenomena in certain patterns. And each of these phenomena are constantly changing. is an image which I've used for the last 25 years and I can't let a retreat go by without using it again because somehow it for me anyway captures the essence of this whole notion of self as a concept tonight go outside if it's clear look up in the sky and probably most of you are able to recognize the Big Dipper, you know, that constellation in the sky. It's clear. 
You know, we can usually pick it out without any problem. Okay, it's halfway through the retreat now. It's time for a little midterm exam. Okay, this is this is the exam. Is there really a big dipper up there? There's no big dipper. <laughs> What did I? Sorry. <laughs> sorry. It's disappointing. <laughs> there are certain stars in a certain relationship to one another creating a pattern. We create a concept about that pattern. We call it Big Dipper. And somehow that's how we view that particular part of the sky. As if the Big Dipper is really there. And if you don't think that you think this, go out at night and see if it's possible not to see the Big Dipper. It's very difficult. Once one has been conditioned to see in a certain way, it's very difficult not to. Joseph, self, is just like Big Dipper. It's a name, it's a concept given to a constellation of thoughts, feelings, sensations, the whole the whole show of experience. But just like Big Dipper really isn't there. There's no philosophy, there's no self, there's no idea. This is true for each one of us. I will. <laughs> I'm also very reluctant to because often Upandita would give these talks and at the end of an hour he would sometimes ask, you know, well, shall I go on for another half hour and I'd be sitting there, just, you know, and it always be somebody, usually up front, you know, oh, please go on. <laughs> and I'd be sitting in the back. No, no, no. <laughs> so I have a lot of compassion for you. But I'm going to go on. <laughs> Just to kind of finish. <laughs> okay, so we create this concept of self, this concept of I, because we're not really looking closely at the constituent elements of experience. Right? We're just seeing the pattern. It's this problem of surface perception without a careful mindfulness to examine what's really there. So we create this concept and then believe the concept has substantial reality. <coughs> now this idea also has consequences for how we relate to experience which further reinforces the sense of self. And that's the process of identification. Even when we begin to distinguish the different aspects of our experience, sensations, thoughts, feelings, we really begin to dissect what it is we call self, but still there's this very strong habit of identifying with our aspect of experience. Just as an example, you're sitting, different bodily sensations arise. What happens mostly is that we take them personally. We think they're happening to me. We're adding that me to the bare experience of the sensation. I'll just play out a sequence, which is very common a sensation of pressure in the knee. Okay, that's just pressure. 
and it's changing and it's doing whatever it's doing but the mind doesn't stop right there it creates a concept me doesn't stop there creates a concept my me doesn't stop there I'll never walk again <laughs> all of this is built on a momentary or so a succession of momentary experiences of pressure we build through concepts the sense of self through identification there is no sensation called me there's no sensation called back that's not what we're experiencing that's a concept we identify with thoughts you know so many thoughts come through in the course of a sitting or walking a day and our habituated reaction is to identify with the thought I'm thinking this is my thought the I and mine is extra the thought is the thinker there is no one behind the thought having it the thought is thinking itself and yet between one step and the next how many mind worlds do we create with our thoughts identify with them create this or invest this strong sense of self in these thoughts and then suffer the consequences of whatever the particular mind world happens to be what's amazing is that very often the thoughts aren't even accurate one time I was doing, during that course, the first course of the Upandita, I was doing some walking meditation outside, and I look up in the window and I see him looking down, you know, watching me. So I get very mindful. <laughs> you know, and I start walking really slowly. <laughs> and then, you know, every once in a while I glance up, and I see him still there, and I start to <laughs> But after a while, after 15 or 20 minutes of this, I really was puzzling, why are you watching me do this walking meditation for so long? So I look up and I look more closely, it was a lampshade. <laughs> and this whole world that I had created in my thoughts. I mean, sometimes our thoughts may be accurate, very often they're not, but in either case, they don't belong to anyone. Just as an experiment, in the next sitting, or the next walking, treat every thought as if it comes from the person next to you. <laughs> Just do, do it and see how it changes your relationship to this process you know it will help free you from this identification this strong identification we have with thoughts even more than with thoughts because it doesn't take so long to at least get the sense that thoughts are very impermanent and they come and they go and we can see them come and go easily but when there's strong emotion emotion in some ways what we most personalize is what we most identify with what we most take to be who we are you know so anger comes happiness comes sadness comes grief comes and immediately the way we respond the way we relate i'm feeling happy i'm feeling sad i'm feeling excited whatever i'm feeling fear and we don't stop with that doesn't even stop with that we further construct the concept I'm a fearful person or I'm an anxious person we build a superstructure the skyscraper of self on top of a momentary 
arising of certain conditions. Certain conditions come, fear arises, sadness arises, happiness arises. It is insubstantial, impermanent, selfless, like everything else. It's anger which angers. Love loves. Sadness sads. It's just each of these mental conditions doing its thing. But again, because we're not paying careful attention, often we don't recognize it, we don't see it, but even when we do, unless we're really quite attentive and aware and mindful, we get caught in this identification with it and thereby create this notion of self and live in that prison. The last aspect of experience, which I'll mention and which we identify with, is consciousness itself, is awareness itself. It's the most subtle. Even as we begin to see all these other aspects of sensations and thoughts and emotions, even if we get a glimpse of them as being non-personal, selfless, just arising out of conditions like the rainbow, still, very often, we're identifying with the awareness, with the consciousness, which is knowing it. And so we create this notion, this concept of the witness, the observer. That's who I am. I may not be any of these things, but I'm the one knowing it all. Okay, this is very subtle. We need to look very directly at the nature of awareness itself to free ourselves from that identification. There's no I, there's no self in awareness. We need to look carefully and see the empty nature of awareness. And that's tremendously liberating. So this is really what our practice is about. You know, we've been spending the first few days trying to settle in, explain the basics of the technique, get the mind settled, a little mindful, a little concentrated. But the practice is very profound. It's about cutting this knot, this central knot of our lives this great illusion of self, of I, of ego. And it's this insight which is the transforming wisdom of the practice. I'll just close with part of a poem by T.S. Eliot which expresses this so beautifully. When we're able, even for moments, to cut through this knot of self, this Gordian knot, let go of attachment to anything. Let go of identification. Nothing whatsoever is to be clung to as I or mine. All of the teachings converge in this point. That is our practice. We pay attention in order to let go of that clinging. This is from the Four Quartets. T.S. Eliot describing the state a condition of complete simplicity costing not less than everything and all shall be well and all manner of things shall be well that's our practice coming to realize this condition of complete simplicity costing not less than everything and all shall be well, and all manner of things shall be well. Let's sit for a few minutes.
Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.